ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Lisa Silverman. Lisa is Senior Managing Director at K2 Integrity. And we're going to visit today about the evolving boardroom challenges around ESG. So, Lisa, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Lisa, I almost hesitate to say this, but one of the groups that has the most challenges around ESG literally up and down the organization is the board of directors. And I want to use the current example of board diversity to try to illustrate that. The state of California has passed a legislation mandating greater diversity in their board of directors. They started off with requiring female directors, and now there's a push for even greater types of diversity. Now that law is being challenged in court as unconstitutional, and certain shareholders have actually sued boards for implementing the law. So damned if you are, damned if you don't. But I really wanted to use that as a jumping off point to start with diversity in the boardroom. I mentioned California. I'd like to ask you what you see that means on a national level, including both from comments from the SEC and NASDAQ and where all this might be headed in the boardroom at this point. You like to start with the big questions, which is great. So the California law, when it was passed in 2018, really sent a a seismic shift or shake through the industry. The industry had never had something like this mandated. Diversity looked like one female on a board, one person of color. And here was California saying, gosh, golly gee, that's nowhere good enough. You all need to do better. And while California was the first state to pass that law, Colorado, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Washington have also either introduced or passed legislation related to board diversity and investment in companies like this. And this issue has been picked up, you said SEC or NASDAQ, but perhaps more influentially, this issue has been really picked up by some of the major institutional investors like State Street, like BlackRock, who have said, look, this is important. It's important that boardrooms represent the people who work at the company, the people who are your customers at the company, the constituents of America, and no longer are we interested in having white male professional directors, if that's all they bring to the table. That's no longer good enough. When I started doing this work in 100 years ago, but in the early 90s with Jules, it used to be that all the board of directors or many of those who comprised board members were white male. They sat on five or six boards, six or seven boards. They retired from their day job and this was their job. And one of the coolest things about having been in this industry for so long and really seeing what has happened since 2018, when this push first really took off to now with the Black Lives Matter movement and what's come about from that is that boardrooms really are looking different. And we are finally, and I say finally with all the the emphasis and mean it, we're finally moving beyond tokenism and are really putting folks on the board 
who are qualified, who've not been considered before, and have really interesting things to bring to bear as, as board of direct members. You know, NASDAQ just last week said that they were going to implement their own regulations about, about diversity, and I'm sure that's going to be challenged as well. The SEC approved a NASDAQ proposal that could make company boards and by extensions even more diverse because the new rules, assuming they're adopted and not challenged, and we can talk about the court system, which might be a whole different podcast and where challenges come from and why they happen. But the new rules are going to require that companies that are listed on NASDAQ report diversity. And if they don't have any diversity, either ethnic or racial or gender diversity or LGBTQ diversity, they're going to have to disclose why they don't have it. And from my perspective, that is super cool. One of my absolute favorite questions when I get to visit with someone like you in terms of seniority in this industry is, well, I'm going to save the question because I want to tell you that someone who I'm sure you both know, she has been at the highest levels of government. She now runs a company's related in the compliance space, I ask her the same question I ask every woman, which is, well, how do you respond to the standard response of, well, we can't find anybody? Now, don't answer that question yet. And the woman I referenced to, of course, I will not name, she threw her head back and looked into the camera and said, well, if they can't find anybody, they ain't looking. And it was the greatest answer because it came straight from the heart. But I wanted to use that as a way to introduce the topic of vetting board candidates. And I had an earlier podcast, K2 Integrity podcast, where we talked about really the increased need for due diligence or vetting of board candidates. I used all of that as an incredibly long-winded way. One, I want your reaction to that question that male board members tend to throw out or male CEOs, but also really why is vetting so much more important now? Obviously, when we get to diversity candidates, but I want to have a broader discussion of really the responsibility and pressures on boards now and companies to get it right in terms of board members. That was a lot of questions rolled into that and a lot of thoughts. So let me start with the thing that I couldn't agree with more, which is the person that you interviewed. Open your eyes and look. There are fabulous women at all levels of business, at all levels of boards, and boards would be lucky to get fill in the blank. Women, people of color, LGBTQ people, people who don't look like what we imagine boards should look like. They would be, the diversity would make the boards incredibly lucky. Again, for many of the reasons that we talk about. But with that and with the increasing diversity and with people not being able to reach into their back pocket and recommend the folks that they've sat on boards with with five, 10, 15, 20 years, in some cases longer, what you have is a greater need to understand whether the people that you are bringing on to the board of a public company is going to be a good steward of that company. And once upon a time, good stewardship meant that you had worked for a while and you were moving on and you are now a person of leisure and maybe you had worked in a specific industry. Maybe you hadn't worked in an industry, but you could bring a certain gravitas to a board. I think that with Enron, with Sarbanes-Oxley, with changes in what it means to be a board member, 
to sit on an audit committee, to oversee somebody's compensation, with the rules around greater accountability that are increasingly being brought to bear, the suitability of someone to serve on the board of a public company has to come under increased scrutiny. Additionally, and this goes to our industry as a whole, this information used to be not out there in plain sight. It used to be much harder to be able to open an SEC filing and see what somebody had said in the past or what somebody had done in the past. When I started in this business, if we wanted to look at an SEC filing to see about somebody's past tenure, you ordered it from the SEC and it cost 50 or $60 for a single document to come to you. And if you needed it urgently, you did something called red carpeting that information, and then it was an extra $100. So to review six or seven or 10 documents would cost upwards of 1000 or $2,000. Now all it costs is the time it takes you to look at these documents. So with the increase in information, what that means, particularly for boards, is that they really need to be more discerning about the work that they do around finding suitable candidates for a board and really holding them accountable for their actions, for their past board roles, for their roles as executives at a company. So if you're considering bringing someone on board whose claim to fame is that he was CFO of a publicly traded company so that you think that he and it is usually he still, is going to be a good person for your audit committee, you better know if the company for which he was CFO had problems with the SEC, had to restate financials, was the subject of an SEC investigation. It is your responsibility as the board of directors to make sure that you are bringing on folks to the board who can oversee the board and be good stewards of that company and don't have baggage that will embarrass you or cause you to stand in poor stead, or most importantly, not meet your obligations to your shareholders. So the diligence becomes more necessary, more acute, and you have to do it better and better. Lisa, I put the board usually in the G of ESG, and I don't know if you would agree with that or perhaps equally S and G, but I'd like to move more now into the S part and social movements. And as much as I agree with everything you said about laws and societal mores changing around board diversity, I think the social movements that came about during the pandemic have accelerated as fast as anything. So I wanted to get your thoughts on what you're seeing in terms of outcomes of shareholder votes and shareholder proposals And then I'm going to, after you answer that, I'm going to talk a little bit about Exxon and see what your thoughts might be on that as well. Okay. So I think that what we saw, I'm going to start with 2020 and the pandemic and George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. I think what we saw in 2020 as we were all locked down and companies were trying to figure out what that meant for them. And then you had a social movement that the entire world stood up and took notice of after what was. I think no matter how your politics play out, what everybody can agree was a horrific murder of someone that was captured on video and sent around the world. What we saw is really a speeding up of some of the social issues. And this plays out, and I want to come back to some of the other issues, but this really played out in real time. 
in 2021, I'm going to start to confuse my years because I'm living in pandemic time, and really it's just all one year right now. But in 2021, of the 456 new independent directors who were added to the boardrooms that were listed on the S&P 500, almost three quarters or 72% of the new directors were either women or people of color, which is a crazy high statistic in a world where, as you said earlier, there's litigation over California saying you have to have one night non-white male on your board. So all of a sudden, there's litigation that is almost in opposition to what we're seeing happening in real time with boards. If we want to break that that 72% number down further, 47% of new independent directors, and the 47% is really a record number, were Black, Asian, or Latinx, which to put that in comparison, a year ago, that number was 22% and only 14% a decade ago. So what we're seeing in the boardroom in terms of a social movement is a very rapid increase in board diversity. It's not necessarily translating to an equity in other areas. So for example, one of the things that I pay attention to every year, partly because it happens around my birthday, is when Equal Pay Day happens. And for those of your listeners who don't follow it as closely as I do, Equal Pay Day is the day where women as a gender make the same amount from the prior year as men made. So what that means on a practical basis is this year, Equal Pay Day for women was March 24th, which means that women had to work until March 24th of this year to make the same amount that men had made in 2020. And we can break down that statistic more depending on whether or not we're talking about Latina women or Asian women or white women or working mothers. But hopefully what we're going to see is from that translation into the boardroom, we're going to see a trickle down into other areas as well. Unfortunately, that doesn't always translate. So if we think about the January 6th insurrection, one of the things that came about after the January 6th insurrection was more than 100 companies said that they were going to stop giving money to politicians, either through their PACs or directly to politicians, who had said that they were going to vote against certifying the election. I think in the moment, the shock and the horror of what happened at the Capitol on January 6th really made companies say, we're not going to do this. That's a movement that hasn't continued. When the spending numbers were released at the end of June, beginning of July for that first half of the year, there was a fair amount of backsliding. And a number of those companies who had said, absolutely not, we're not going to give to these politicians, in fact, had donated to these politicians, according to FEC records. So I think that social movements, some are permanent, some are not permanent. They come and go. And it's interesting to see what sticks or what doesn't stick. There's been for sure, going to the proposal part of your question, there's been for sure an increase in entities that are calling for greater transparency around political spending. One of the New York State pension funds has, I think, filed more than 100 proposals in the last two years. More of them passed this year than have passed in in years prior. So the companies are being asked to disclose what their spending looks like. It'll be interesting to see if that stays or if that doesn't stay. But I think that some social movements really do move forward. Some social movements move forward and backslide. And it's I think it's sometimes hard to predict what movement will do what. 
professionally, I grew up in Houston and a large part of my career, I worked in the energy industry. And so I was particularly intrigued with the Exxon shareholder imbroglio from this year. And for those listening who may not recall, a very small Exxon shareholder, engine number one, proposed four alternative candidates to the Exxon board, alternative to who Exxon proposed. Three of those four were elected. And a lot of the commentary was around one point more on the E of ESG environmental because there was some clamor that perhaps this pretended a change to make companies move to more carbon neutrality. But what intrigued me, Lisa, was that Exxon stock is basically half of what it was 10 years ago. And I think many asset stewards wanted the company to go in a different direction for profitability and that they saw carbon neutrality as a component of that. But it was a greater sense that the company was headed in the wrong direction and a new slate of directors or at least some new directors were appropriate. So I really wanted to get your views. Is this an earth shattering event that many have said, or is this just a more of an evolution of some of the concepts that you've been talking about and really tying ESG into greater stakeholder value? Yes. I mean, the short answer is yes, it's all of it. Ultimately, and this goes to an issue of what's a stakeholder versus what's a shareholder versus what is the purpose of a corporation. Ultimately, a corporation would argue that the purpose of a corporation is to make money, to return money to shareholders. So when the stock drops by 50% over a 10-year period, regardless of how you feel about environmental issues, the question is why? Why is the stock dropping? Why is what has always been a blue chip stock not a blue chip stock anymore. And you take a look at what those factors are. Chris James, who runs Engine Number One, who has been in this business, Engine Number One, I think what sometimes gets lost in the Exxon conversation is Engine Number One is a brand new startup fund. But Chris James has been in this world for a long time and he's very smart and he's very smart about the way he th thinks about things. And the argument I think that came forward pretty quickly in that proxy fight was. Environmental issues are important, and I think that we only need to look to this week's news out of the UN to see just how important they are. I actually had to stop listening to the news this week because it was waking me up at night with bad dreams in terms of what we were doing to the environment. But Chris James said, the world is moving in different directions. There are other companies that are moving in that direction, taking the example of, I think President Biden spoke about this earlier this week, or if not last week. Does the U.S. want to be at the forefront of change, at the forefront of new technologies, or do they want to be playing catch up? And the example he gave are electric car batteries. So that when he talks about the new infrastructure bill, it comes back to it's good for the economy, it's good for the U.S. So with ESG issues and the environmental piece in particular, I think it's a classic example of it all dovetailing. We have to deal with the environmental impact. There has been a commitment to become carbon neutral by 2050. And companies that don't do that are not going to return the same value to their shareholders and are going to be left behind. There are going to be nimble startups. There are going to be larger companies that make the shift. And if you can't do that, then you're going to be left in the dust. There are the road of the 21st century is littered with companies that couldn't make the shift and either became obsolete, went out of business, or, or were acquired by others. I mean, I think we can look to a company 
like Kodak or Polaroid for that. In terms of the company that everybody knew for me growing up what a Kodak moment was, everybody, there were songs written about Kodak, Kodachrome film. They're nowhere now, or they're not nowhere, but they're certainly not where they used to be. And that's an example of their technology being eclipsed by a different world. So to your question about engine number one, I think this is a perfect example of the environmental reality, which is fundamental to the way they invest and the way they want to see change dovetailed with the real world implications of disappointing returns and the fact they were being left behind. It's a clear example to me of strategy and tactics meeting ideology. And if I could maybe pick up on that last point, I was also intrigued by the nature of the proxy fight and really wanted to use that as an example to explore with you why the sides view each other so differently. So engine number one is a relatively new startup, but as you said, Chris James has been in this industry for quite some time. He's not a tree hugger firebrand that came in and wanted to change Exxon. I think he's, as you said, very thoughtful and had an approach that he wanted Exxon to implement. My understanding is that he sat down with Exxon and tried to propose a set of candidates that would be acceptable to Exxon. I read several large asset stakeholders in Exxon were were frustrated with the lack of dialogue they felt like they got with Exxon. So it's a long-winded way of asking you, how or why do these sides see each other so differently? It's a great question. I think that part of that is rooted in really the change that we have seen in activism since the 1980s through today. What we saw in the 80s was activism wasn't necessarily how do you make a company better. It was how do we go in, how do we essentially raid a company? The term corporate raiders is there for a reason. How do we potentially loot a pension fund, cut costs, get our money out of it, and then move on versus what a fund like, and there are still funds that do that now. But what a fund like engine number one is really about, which is how do we work with you to make a change? How do we work with you to make the company better? And companies are made up of people and people have egos. You know, I've been doing this work for a very long time and I try to check my ego at the door. But when I have a colleague or a client or someone I'm working with come in and say, Lisa, we think you're getting this completely wrong. The work always gets better if I listen to them. I don't have to agree with them, but I certainly have to hear their point of view. And they're often right about it. They're not always as right as they think they are. And I'm not always as right as I think I am. But that conversation has to happen. And so as activism has moved from corporate raiders to still some activist investors who are in there for a short-term bump and get out, they're in there for a year or less, to a fund like Engine Number One or some others who are really saying, no, we want to walk with you. There's a fundamental sort of disconnect, I think, at the level of the company that says, you can't tell us how to do our business. A batch of years ago, I had a client, it wasn't my client yet, but I contacted a company that was being targeted by an activist fund. It was a well-known activist fund. And I said to the client, like, here's what this fund does typically. We think we can help you. And the client, who is a super smart client or remains a client to this day, said to me, 
we're going to work with this activist. We don't think they're wrong, but we want to make sure that the folks that they are proposing for our board of directors are the right folks. So can you help us, going back to the due diligence piece of this, can you help us look at these people and see if they are the right fit? And so what we did was engage in a very open and transparent due diligence process. And it actually turned out that one of this fund's original nominees was precluded from serving on the board because he had a non-compete with his former company that said he couldn't serve as a director in the same industry. So had he gone forward with it, it would have been a problem for him going onto the board and it would have been a problem for the company. That client continues to work with us on board of director vetting and that investor six, seven years later is still in the company and the company's stock is trading 60% higher than it was when this activist got into the stock. So that's a story really of what happens when a company does listen. It is very cool. You've used a couple of terms I'd like to maybe follow up on, and those terms are stakeholder versus shareholder. I think many people, it was a wake-up call when the Business Roundtable released their statement on the purpose of a corporation and talked about their view of five different stakeholders versus simply a shareholder. But are there differences between the United States and the Great Britain or United Kingdom system? And if so, how are those differences reflected in boards? So. Yes. And before we go into that, when I talk about a shareholder, what we're really talking about is somebody who has an equity interest in the company. And without going down a lesson of stocks versus bonds versus preferred shares, it is the thing that one can buy and sell and is traded on the exchange. So there's a group of people, institutional investors or Main Street investors who are, who are shareholders of a company. Stakeholders are really anybody who has an interest in a company, and that could be the stockholders, it could be the bondholders, it could be the customers, it could be the suppliers, it's the employees, and it's a much larger group of people. And so when we were talking a minute ago about an activist investor coming in and getting their money out of the company because there's a quick bump in the stock, that is often to the detriment of other stakeholders. It often comes with layoffs or other sorts of cost-cutting measures, which are not particularly good necessarily for employees. It can come with price increases, which aren't good for consumers. It can come with a decision to pay subcontractors or contractors on longer payment terms or to cut their payment. Again, none of that is necessarily good for the company because it can change a company's ability to do that work. And so one of the things that we see perpetually is the difference between who benefits when a company's stock rises. And that has to do to a certain extent with the change between institutional investors and retail investors. What's interesting though, you raise the UK and the UK definitely has a different view as to how this might work. In 2018, the UK amended their corporate governance code to provide for more input from various stakeholders, so beyond the people who just own the stock, and essentially with a goal to enhance the employee voice from the boardroom and improve workforce engagement, which means that when you are looking at what potentially can happen to a company if an activist investor comes in, there are a different set of rules that are not just governed by how the boardroom goes down. The employees have a voice in the approval of it, as do some of the other constituents. 
in that UK piece of it too, we're potentially moving to this in the US, although I think we're a few years off. The UK requires pay ratios be disclosed, the disparity between pay from the lowest level employee to the CEO and discloses that be made public. What we haven't seen because the pandemic has hit is how effective these new regulations are. And it certainly doesn't obviate or mitigate the issue that the UK, particularly now that it's left the EU, is under fire for broader human rights issues that the EU has been addressing for years. The grass is greener, but it might just be a different grass too. Certainly the US is a little more focused on human rights issues, I think, than we see in the UK. So it's sort of all out there as which lever that you're pulling. One of the things that happened in 2018 is that Elizabeth Warren proposed what was called the Accountable Capitalism Act. And her premise was if Citizens United gave corporations in the US the status of personhood, they should be subject to some of the same responsibilities of it. So she proposed a whole batch of things around that, which limited the CEO's ability to sell shares that required profits be distributed to shareholders and to stakeholders, stakeholders more than shareholders. And the most controversial piece of her proposal, which for sure got the most airtime, was a corporation's board would have to consist of 40% of employees. And that created utter pandemonium because that, in theory and in practice, would turn the notion of what a board was on its head. So traditionally, I think they've been recognized as sort of two shareholder groups, Main Street versus Wall Street. It seems like there's not only a multiplicity of groups, but they merge and demerge and are very fluid when they come together. And if we can overlay on top of that social media, which can both amplify a message and also bring together disparate voices who may not have known each other because they were simply howling in the wind and now they're howling on social media that can be uh, picked up. So I was really wanted to get your thoughts on, are we seeing really a fundamental shift away from Wall Street versus Main Street or is something else going on? I think that there's still the tension between big institutional investors and individuals who think that they can buy shares in a company and make money on sort of a one-off basis. I think one of the things that's so interesting is what we saw with Reddit and the subreddits earlier this year with GameStop, which turned, which slightly different because it involves short sellers, but it turned the notion of the big guy versus little guy on its head. And I think that that is a perfect example of the dovetailing of what happens when people are communicating in less traditional ways and are able to create a movement that is outside of what is traditional communication methods. And I think we're seeing that both in corporate contests where news is being disseminated. Certainly, once we get to the state of a proxy fight, that information is being disseminated through proxy filings with the SEC, but there are many other more invasive, pervasive, and subtle ways that information makes it to stakeholders or shareholders, social media, websites, targeted advertising. And this is all changing the very nature of how companies come under a microscope. 
it means that things happen. I mean, one of the things for sure we're seeing is things happen much more quickly. Real time speeds up and there's no break between when something is announced and when that next move gets made. My very first proxy fight happened my first year working with Jules. And I came in either the day before or day after Christmas, which is typically a time that proxy fights got launched. I mean, now nobody's ever away from their desk, it feels like, because the CEOs would be on vacation and somebody had launched a proxy fight on a Fortune 100 company. And it became this crazy fight. But one of the things that was so challenging in that moment was that the key management and the key directors had dispersed to different parts of the world for vacation, and there was no way to bring them back together quickly. That kind of problem doesn't exist in today's world. I mean, you can put everybody on a Zoom call or go to meeting call or a Teams meeting or whatever it is in a matter of minutes. And really, how disconnected are people from their devices in a real way? And you know, pros and cons to that. I tried to go on vacation recently, and there was a big con to that. But in terms of the sneak attack piece of this, it obviates it. It makes it go away. So that's all a function of technology speeding things up and really forcing a need for accuracy. It used to be enough in all of this work for somebody to put out a fact. We found this fact. We burnished this fact. It's shiny. It's lovely. And you got the fact out there. It's changed now because that fact doesn't stand alone. That fact has implications. And so the work that I'm doing and the work that the team I work with does changes. It's not good enough to just find the fact. It it really is what does that fact mean and what's the analysis around the fact and how does that have implications for ESG, for activism, for general due diligence, for boards in general. And I think that comes back to what you were talking about at the top of this podcast, in terms of it all starts and it all starts with the board and board accountability and board responsibility. And that has changed in very real ways and in ways that I think ultimately are better because boards are more accountable, but ways with some big implications in the world of ESG, in the world of boardroom diversity, and in the world of corporate operations. I don't think that had the pandemic happened 20 years ago, we would have seen companies being as nimble as they are now in terms of still being able to meet clients and customers' needs. Lisa, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on K2 Integrity or K2 Integrity's ESG efforts or find out more about some of the topics we may have covered in this podcast, where could they go? They could certainly go to the K2 website, which is www.k2integrity.com. You can learn about what K2 Integrity does generally and then more specifically on these topics, as well as, you know, I work with some amazing people. So my bio, the bios of some of my colleagues, I'm pretty lucky to be working where I work with the people I work. So www.k2integrity.com. Lisa, this has just been a fascinating exploration of a lot of topics and a lot of subjects under ESG, and I hope that we can continue this conversation. I would like that a lot. I really appreciate your inviting me on and taking the time to listen to me.